Chad Horton and Rose Padilla have been exploring South America by motorcycle for years now. With no real agenda or direction, they sort of roam from one country to another, exploring scenery and experiencing culture, except where they're prohibited by law. That's another story, though. Recently, they took on what could only be considered or described as an adventurer's route, far off the beaten path, a route that would bisect the Amazon jungle from east to west, going through some of the most remote and unfrequented, at least by outsiders, areas of the Amazon. What they didn't count on was that the Amazon was experiencing a 125-year drought that would affect their entire route. Where there was water, there's now mud, and where there was mud, there's now dust. And what they couldn't have known was that some of the boats they were told could carry their motorcycle would not, while others would unload them far from land on the muddy bottom of that dying river. And one boat's captain would actually hijack their motorcycle deep in the Amazon jungle. An incredible story of high adventure that Chad and Rose say they are pleased that they did, but they would never do again, and they certainly would not recommend it. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Simon Manneker, Simon Austin Vince, Simon Pavey, Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. My name is Chad Horton. I am from Los Angeles, California. I am from Two Wheels, Three Sheets, and I am a professional... Really, I'm not professional anything. <laughs> uh, my name is Rose Padilla, and I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I am one half of the B team known as Two Wheels, Three Sheets. Rose, Chad, welcome back. Thank you. Senor Martin, how are you? <laughs> Very well. Where are you guys right now? We are in Jericoacoara National Park in Brazil. A national park. So how do you get to stay in the national park? It's not as easy as we thought it was going to be, actually. Um, we showed up on our motorcycle and expecting that we could just ride right in and they wouldn't let us without a guide. Um, and it's apparently across our destination was about 40 minutes across to the giant set of sand dunes. Um, and they advised us not to take the motorcycle there. So we actually had to strip our bags off the bike, park the bike in town, and take a truck into the park 
And we are staying at like a small hotel uh, at the city inside the park. And it's very, very beautiful here. Yeah, that's but awesome. We are sans oh. motorcycle right now. Oh, so you must have really wanted to see this park to leave the motorcycle behind. Well, Rose had already made reservations, so <laughs> we didn't really have much of a choice. <laughs> yeah, and we're not disappointed. It's actually, it's quite amazing here. Why? What is it? What's the, what's the park like? It is a series of sand dunes um, just along the Atlantic coast. And there is a small town smack dab in the middle of it. And it's just, you know, Rose was saying last night, it really reminds her of some of the smaller uh, beachside villages that we've been in in Thailand. It's just mm. very unexpected. So the town, to get into the town, you have to drive through sand dunes? Mm -hmm. And the, the motorcycle would not have made it. Well, I, so they drive the trucks, obviously, through the sand dunes to get to town. Seems like an odd place to live then. Yeah, and dune buggies. I think they have to ship everything in. Yeah, they have to bring everything in via trailer. And believe it or not, and I was surprised as anybody, there is a hard rock cafe here. <laughs> that, that has to be somewhat disappointing doesn't it it is <laughs> it, it is i mean it doesn't really you know it doesn't really destroy the atmosphere but it just seems so improbable it's like the hard rock cafe in ushuaia you know it's just like it, it, it does kind of taint that end of the world feeling yeah. um you know when you can get the uh the hard rock cafe ushuaia t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys are adventurers you're out there on the edge you know exploring new places and then you get into this town and you find a hard rock cafe so tell me yeah. what was it like i i expect like when elon musk lands on mars finally there's probably going to be a hard rock cafe there as well <laughs> damn things are everywhere it's gonna be waiting for him <laughs> but you did go in though no you didn't no 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 no, no. Oh, I thought I thought for sure you would have went, went inside and checked it out and see what it's like, but you probably already know what it's like. Maybe after the podcast, we'll go get a bumper sticker and send it to you. <laughs> right. That's a good idea. I'd like that. <laughs> so what are you guys doing right now? I mean, I said your adventures, you're out there riding. Overall, for those who don't know, what, what's your trip about? What are you doing? Uh, well, we are, it, it depends on, it depends on, you know, when you want to start the clock, but we are about five years into our trip right now. Um, in fact, I just clicked the five-year anniversary of when I left Los Angeles in late 2018. And uh, we spent a couple years down in Patagonia working on our business, which uh, we subsequently lost after a very bitter lawsuit. And we're on the bike now, just slowly winding our way north and getting lost as much as humanly possible. And what's the ultimate plan here? What are you what What are you going to end up doing? Are you trying to make your way home in a convoluted route? Uh, you know, the plan seems to constantly be changing, and it's it's very odd because during this trip that um, we're going to discuss today, when we were crossing the Amazon, I almost had a bit of an epiphany. Um, you know, a lot of people travel because they're looking for something; they're looking for answers to life what have you. Uh, and often people are very disappointed because they don't find what it was they were looking for. And I wasn't looking for anything and I stumbled across it and I just kind of had this, this feeling of completion, this feeling of peace um, after having finally crossed the Amazon, which wasn't even necessarily on my list of things to do. So right now we're slowly working our way back to Los Angeles uh, I've got some fam, uh, some family issues, primarily with my father to tend to there. And, uh, we'll kind of figure things out from there. We don't know yet. So this thing you found, 
Mm -hmm. Is it a one thing you found or what did you discover? It's really hard to put my finger on, Jim. I have been fascinated with the Amazon uh, since probably about the age of six or seven. And I remember a National Geographic magazine. And the cover was simply an aerial photo of the jungle with one word, Amazon, as the title of the magazine. And I was just fascinated. Uh, and after exploring, I've been exploring South America for close to 20 years now, only on the motorcycle for about four or five. But, you know, I've been making trips down here since 2004 and I've been in the Amazon before. But for whatever reason, this haphazard, random trip across the Amazon, it just felt like a sense of closure, almost like, okay, I'm done with, after 20 years, I'm finally done with South America. It's time to move on. And why? I, I can't explain it. I don't know. I don't know. I just think it was maybe like this fascination I've had since I was a child. Uh, an itch that I didn't realize was even there that finally got scratched. It's really hard to explain, Jim. But it sounds to me like you either experienced all that you wanted to, or you've gotten to the point where you think I've had enough of this and I'm looking for something else. I don't think there's really a sense that I've had enough um, because I have been traveling uh, and exploring my entire life. It's just part of my DNA. It's who I am. So it's not something that I'm necessarily tired of. I just felt like after having crossed the Amazon that I had kind of completed my mission, so to speak, in terms of South America. I had, I had been there, done that, got the t-shirt, <laughs> but it just, it was, it was almost like a sense of peace that settled over me. And again, it was very unexpected because it was nothing that I was necessarily looking for. I just stumbled across it. Well, let's talk about this trip and maybe we'll get a better idea and maybe even discover where it is that you, you got this feeling. You um, did a cross section of South America through the Amazon. I think it's 56 days. Um, maybe just talk about the overall trip to begin with, and then we'll dig in. Well, to begin with, um, we didn't intend on making this journey. It was kind of by accident. We were kind of surreptitiously winding our way north, intending to go to Quito, Ecuador. And we had already made a couple smaller forays into the Amazon uh, down in southern Peru in, in, in Manu National Park on the Madre de Dios River, which was amazing. We had been in the Bolivian Amazon. And so on our way to Quito, I figured, okay, well, let's veer east a bit. Uh, head into Coca, Ecuador, which is one of the, the farthest east cities in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And we'll go check that out. So we didn't want to take the highway in. We took the back road, which was, you know, that's a story in and of itself. It was very rough, rocky road. Rose ended up suffering from heat exhaustion. Yeah, my first time. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that wasn't pretty. No. Um, but we finally made it into Coca. Very interesting town, kind of a, a little seedy. It's got some flavor to it. Uh, a port city there on the Amazon. And our intention from there was to head back west and go hit Quito. And we'd only intended on being there for one night. I pulled out the map trying to figure out what our route to Quito was going to be. And I noticed as I was looking at the map, I was like, well, this is interesting. You know, Coca, Ecuador is right on the Napo River. 
the Napo River is a tributary of the Amazon River. So theoretically, you could take the Napo River from Coca to the Amazon River, take the Amazon River to Iquitos, Peru, and continue down the Amazon to Manaus, Brazil, and theoretically all the way to the Atlantic coast. So a, a river trip. A river trip. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you're on a motorcycle. <laughs> but we're on a motorcycle. So again, this wasn't something that I was even seriously considering, to be honest with you. I just, I noted it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that did catch my attention was that uh, BR319, the ghost road, extends between Manaus, Brazil and Porto Velo, Brazil. It's about, I think, around 900 kilometers. And it's a very infamous road uh, in Brazil. And it had been on my list of things to do, but with the routes that we ended up taking, we just kind of had missed our opportunity. So I had written it off. I just kind of assumed that we weren't going to be riding the ghost road. But it starts in Manaus, Brazil, uh, which is right on the Amazon River. So these were just kind of like thoughts that were swimming around in my head. So I pull the map out. And I show Rose and I said, you know, theoretically we could. And before I even finished the sentence, Jim, she looks at me and she says, let's do it. (laughs) Yep. You know, that shouldn't surprise him though, because I've basically been saying that our whole relationship. (laughs) (laughs) You're ready to go. Any adventure, just let's do it. I'm on board. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I hadn't even concussed. I mean, like I said, this wasn't I wasn't even trying to pitch this to her. It wasn't a proposal. I was just... Too late. It was already pitched. (laughs) (laughs) It was literally just something like a point of interest I noticed on the map. So so with that, with the let's do it, you know, I kind of started reading, you know, we extended our stay in Coca for a couple extra days and I started doing some reading (laughs) on the internet, trying to figure out, okay, is it even possible to piece this trip together? And people have done it in the past. Um, we were far from the first people to do it, but a lot of the information we were able to find was very outdated. You know, we're talking 2017, 2019, pre-COVID. There really wasn't anything though. Even the outdated stuff was sparse. Yeah. I mean, we had found some old entries on iOverlander. We found somebody had posted on Horizons Unlimited saying, claiming they had done the trip and they got attacked by pirates with flaming arrows, <laughs> which I found a bit hard to believe. But, um, but one of the things that we did discover was, okay, like if we do try to take this trip down the river, departing from Coca, uh, the last city in Ecuador is Nuevo Rocafuerte and there's no aduana's office there. And there's no aduana's office in Coca. So I'm like, all right, well, how do we then cancel our Ecuadorian TIP? That's, that's customs. That's customs. Yeah. yeah. He always says aduana, but yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, just saying, I'm just saying it. So people who, who don't know that, they yeah, know yeah. it's customs. Yeah. Because yeah. we have the TIP and obviously you always want to cancel your, your import permit uh, when you leave a country. So it was just like one of those logistical issues I was dealing with. So I went down, there's a, there's an airport there in Coca. I went to the immigration office. I asked them, you know, what they thought I should do. And, you know, they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and they said, well, there's Armada, which is like the Ecuadorian Navy. The Armada has a, a command post at Nuevo Rocafuerte. If, if you float down the river, go talk to them. Maybe they can help you out. So, you know, with that, we decided, okay, well, let's go down to the port. Um, let's see if we can book a boat. And worst case scenario, if we can't, make it through. We'll just turn around. We'll come back to Coca and continue on to Quito. 
So hang on. So so really what you're doing is just what I said. You're doing obviously a river trip. You're talking about how the rivers connect. You're talking about loading your, your motorcycle and you guys onto a boat of some kind. And I'm assuming this isn't going to be a ferry that runs and this whole route is going to be on the water. Well, depending on how far we decide to go, um, if we end up going to Manaus, Brazil, that would end up being about 2,000 kilometers of river. Uh, and then we could potentially jump off the boats in Manaus and then take the ghost road south, or we could continue all the way to the Atlantic coast on the Amazon. So we, we hadn't really fully baked this idea yet. We were just kind of taking it a step at a time. So, and we're still at this point trying to figure out whether or not it's even possible. So we go down to the dock there in Coca, Ecuador, and we're asking them about like the the boat schedules and everything. And they said, okay, well, yeah, you, you, you know, you can't take the same boat as the motorcycle. Passengers take one boat, cargo takes another boat. We can take you to Nuevo Roca Fuerte at the Ecuadorian Peruvian border. And it was only a, about on the fast boat. It was only about four or five hours. It was a fairly short trip, hmm. but then I asked, okay, well then what do we do from Nuevo Roca Fuerte? And they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and they're like, well, you've got to find another boat. I was like, well, it, do you have a schedule? Do you know? And they're like, no, there's no schedule. You know, you just have to go there and you have to kind of figure it out. So the more we read online, it was just, this was what, you know, we were finding out is there are no schedules. Um, there are no companies. There's nobody to email. There's nobody to call. It's just, you've got to get on the river, make it as far as they'll take you. And then you figure it out from there. So it's a leap of faith. You're, you're going to jump on. And then when you finally get to a destination, then you got to look around and say, is it even possible to go anywhere? Yeah, I mean, and everything is subject to change. Even when you go somewhere and you get an actual answer, um, doesn't mean that that's really what's going to take place. You kind of have to just be flexible about everything. This is just South America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is South America times 10. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you kind of get used to things being in flux down here. But this was, you know, a lot of people, you know, we would talk to would just simply shrug their shoulders and we would get a different answer from just about everybody that we did speak to. Mm. So we said, okay, worst case scenario, we can always just turn around and come back. You know, we retrace our steps. So we're like, let's give it a shot. So we go down, we have to load the motorcycle uh, the night prior to departure. And again, they won't allow us to take the same boat for whatever reason. Uh, so we load the motorcycle the night prior. Uh, we show up bright and early the next day. We get on the fast boat, the passenger boat, and four or five hours down the Napo River to Nuevo Roca Fuerte, right there on the Ecuadorian-Peruvian border. The cargo boat that had the motorcycle was supposed to show up, I think, by about 3 p.m. And 3 p.m. comes and goes, 5 p.m. comes and goes, the boat's still not there. So they finally get there with the motorcycle and it's getting kind of late. And one of the biggest issues, and we didn't know this at the time, Jim, but one of the biggest issues that we ended up contending with throughout this entire journey was the fact that the Amazon River and all the main tributary rivers right now are at a 125 year low. Wow. Yeah. The so this is, this is a 125 year low. This is a cyclical thing that happens or is this anything to do with deforestation or? Climate change, deforestation. Um, Brazil is in the grips of a historic drought right now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so traveling by river isn't as easy as it was just a few years ago. 
So these rivers that would normally be full when they drop, obviously everything that's set up at the shore, because it's never been this low as far as, you know, in recent history, they're all set up for a river that's much higher and you're all of a sudden far away from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that ends up being one of the biggest things that we had to contend with was, you know, these, these small cities on the river, they didn't have docks. There wasn't a port, you know, everything's basically carried up and down the riverbank by manpower. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. river was so low, you know, we, when the boat finally arrived with our motorcycle in Nuevo Roca Fuerte, it was tied at the bottom of a very steep set of concrete stairs that just sort of ended. There was no way to get the motorcycle off the boat and up to the city itself. Um, and there would really be no point in doing it anyway, because we were planning on getting an, on another boat. So best case scenario would be just transfer the motorcycle from one boat to another boat down there at water level. But regardless, that night, there was no way to get the motorcycle off the boat. So I talked to the, who I assumed was the boat captain. And he said, yeah, no problem. Meet me back down here tomorrow morning at 6.30 a.m. We'll untie, we'll go over to the beach, we'll unload the motorcycle on the beach. You can put it in another boat and be on your way. Mm-hmm. So sounds great. I'm out there 6.30 the next morning. Nobody's there. Wait till 7.30, uh, wait till 8.30, nobody showed up. And by like 9.30 or so, it's getting really hot out. And there's no shade, there's no shelter. And so I figured, okay, well, screw it. I'm not going to stand out here all morning. I'm going to go back to the room where we had air conditioning. And nothing happens quickly here anyway. So I figured, okay, I'll just go check every 20, 30 minutes to see, you know, see when the guys show up. Yeah. So Rose actually, uh, Rose actually goes out at one point, I think it was around 10 a.m. And she said, hey, you know, I think she called me on WhatsApp or whatever. She said, hey, the, uh, the boat's, you know, heading towards the beach now. I was like, great. So I run out there. And I asked her, I was like, where's the boat? (laughs) And she points at it and it's going back up the river. Yeah, it's actually leaving. It's not trying to unload. It's actually taking off. Yeah. With your bike. With the bike, yeah. With our motorcycle and the majority of our gear. Yeah. Um, You know, when when we got on the passenger boat, we just grabbed our bags with our clothes. We left, you know, the boxes and everything else on the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) <laughs> we're watching our, our, our bike and the majority of our beer, our gear disappear back up the river. And there was a, there was a local there and uh, it's 10 AM. He's already got uh, a beer in hand. Oh. And he <laughs> says, no, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that he had ever stopped drinking from the day before. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's just, nice to know. Cause you made him sound like an early morning drinker and he's not he at all. He doesn't have a problem. He's, he's just continuous. No, this was an all night thing. Continuing the party. Yeah. So, um, you know, he tells me, oh, hey, don't worry. It's just going up the river to pick some things up. It'll be back in a few hours. So, okay. A few hours. That's 1 PM. Not a problem. 1 p.m. comes and goes, 2 p.m. comes and goes. And, you know, at this point, I'm starting to get a little concerned. You know, you never want to be that guy, you know, who's kicking and screaming and making a fuss and everybody else is like, what's this guy's problem? Mm -hmm. But by the time it was 5 p.m. and the boat still hadn't come back, you know, I even had some of the locals being like, uh, you might want to go talk to the Armada. Now, luckily, yeah, the Armada. The, uh, the the Ecuadorian Navy. So even the locals are thinking that possibly your bike has been hijacked. Yeah, 
Yeah, they were like something. Something's not right here. Yeah, even by their standards. Yeah, now, yeah. Now, does this boat that brought you you guys there? Does it have a schedule? Like, would you be expecting that boat again the next day? Uh, the passenger boat. I think yeah. it runs like twice a week. Yeah, it was twice a week. Yeah. So I ostensibly, that that barge or whatever it is, the boat that brought in your bike, that runs alongside it at the same schedule or roughly. Well, it's believe it or not, it's actually two different companies. So you have oh. to buy one ticket for the, for the bike with one company, another ticket for the pack. So it's, it's two different independent companies. So, oh. you know, I don't know necessarily what the schedule was, but so I went and we talked to the Armada. Luckily we had actually spoken with them the night previous regarding the TIP issue. Um, so they knew who we were and why we were there and what we were trying to do and everything. Mm-hmm. So, um, they call the, the captain, he ends up coming down. Uh, on, on the back of a moto taxi, he gets on the phone with the owner of the boat. And the owner of the boat says, no, the, the, the boat's on its way to Belo Horizonte, yeah. which is on the Ecuadorian coast. And he's like, the boat's gone. Yeah. It wasn't just going up the river. It was gone. Yeah. So far, how, how, how far away is that? Uh, too far. <laughs> yeah, it's it's on the, I mean, we're in the Ecuadorian Amazon. This is on the Ecuadorian coast. So, I mean, it's probably, you know, over a thousand miles away. <laughs> so, so I just like, you know, I'm, we're beside ourselves. We don't know what to say or what to do. And, you know, we're basically saying, so they've, they've essentially stolen our gear. What What's going on? So the, the Armada captains on the phone, a lot of conversations taking place back and forth. There's a lot of confusion. And then he says to me, do you want to go see your motorcycle? I was like, what do you mean? Do I want to go see? You just told me it's gone. It's, you know, they've disappeared. He's like, no, get on the back of the motor tax and he'll take you to your motorcycle. (laughs) Yeah. This, this little tiny moto taxi. I mean, it's just funny because Chad never, uh, rides pillion in the first place. And then to see him get on the back of this small little moto taxi, like trying not to get like really close to the to the man who's who's in charge. And he basically just rides off. And it's it's like I'm thinking that's probably the last time I'll see him. So you're left there. He's going off to Neverland. Doesn't even mm-hmm. know where he's going. No, and, yeah, and this no is one it. knows really. It's basically it's it's basically like they say it's that way. Um, wow. So yeah, they take off, and I'm just left there, you know, just to wait. So what do you do? I hang out with the Armada and just hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Chad, you're on the back of this bike. Cuddling up to your buddy. Yeah. And, and they pick up another guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At one point, he actually pulled over and picked up like a 12-year-old boy. And I mean, this is so like it's a- all three of them on one little moto taxi. This is like a 150cc moto taxi. I'm doing my best to sit on the rear rack. He's got like the 12-year-old sitting on the gas tank. And we're literally taking debt off down this mud track into the middle of the jungle. I mean, the town itself is very, very small and we're no longer anywhere near town. So I have no clue where we're going. Any idea how long you're going to be riding though? No, I've got no gear on, you know, I'm wearing like flip-flops and shorts, you know, and we're just taking off in the middle of the jungle, you know, much like Rose. I'm just like, well, you know, where are we going? So we finally show up at this, uh, you know, basically it's just like a, a cleared lot along 
alongside another river, like a tributary river. And there is the boat tied up again, like down a steep embankment. And there's all sorts of activity taking place. They've got this boat loaded up with hundreds of sacks of concrete. And they are unloading the sacks of concrete just on their backs, you know, walking them up and laying them in the, in the, in this dirt lot. And so I walk up and, you know, my first question is, okay, who's in charge? And everybody points to this woman. Now I had seen this woman in town earlier and, um, she had been, you know, not necessarily all that, uh, nice. Uh, and I realized that she was the owner of the boat and her husband was the individual that was drinking beer at 10 AM earlier that day that said, Oh, the boat's going to be back in a few hours. Mm-hmm. I had seen them later that day. They realized I was looking for the motorcycle. They were aware of the situation and they didn't want to talk to me. They just took off on their bike. And you know, that was it. And I realized much later, this was the owner of the boat and that's her husband. So um, they didn't want to talk to me there at the dirt lot either. So I ended up talking to the boat captain and the captain agreed um, that he would come back to the beach tomorrow at 7 a.m. with my motorcycle because there was no way to get where we were. There was no way to get the motorcycle off the boat. Um, it was a stink, steep, muddy embankment. There's no way to get the gear off the boat. And even if I got it off, I couldn't bring it on the back of the moto taxi with me. So it was just like, I really had no choice. I couldn't do anything at that moment. But I had the moto taxi driver come over and I said, testigo, testigo, this is my witness. You know, you tell him what you told me, you know, and the guy said, I will bring the the motorcycle back to the beach tomorrow at 7 a.m. Moto taxi ride back to the Armada. You know, I make the moto taxi driver tell the Armada captain exactly what he was told, exactly what he heard. And the captain said, look, if they do not come back, if they are not back here bright and early tomorrow at 7 a.m., you come find me and we will go find them. Mm, smart to get the taxi rider to to listen to this and take it back. Yeah, because these guys, they're all locals, you right. know, and it's a very small town. Well, we so. were the only tourists or foreigners there. Yeah, yeah, we, oh. were, we, yeah, we were the only non-locals there. So... Sure enough, the boat shows up again at, you know, to the next day, 7 a.m. They unload the, the motorcycle. They unload the gear. Um, it was a bit worse for wear, unfortunately, but we got the bike and the gear back. So this was kind of a, a rocky start to the trip thus far. Mm-hmm. Because, um, because what you'll have to do if, if for some reason you can't go any further is you're going to have to use the same boat to go back. That was exactly my line of thinking as well. And I don't think I'd endeared myself to them. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was, yeah, it was kind of a, an interesting situation, you know, and I, I had people after the fact ask me, they're like, well, do you think this was just like a logistical issue on their end? Or do you think that maybe they were trying to steal your motorcycle? And at first I was kind of trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, but the more I thought about it, the fact that they had seen me in town and, and didn't tell me, oh yeah, the, the boat's just down the river. They had originally allied to the Armada captain about the location of the boat you know, and then refused to talk to me after the fact, I think that maybe somebody sensed that perhaps they had an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, it's really strange because you think that the, the chance of getting caught is just so incredibly high. I mean, let's face it, you're stranded there in the middle of nowhere. They're the ones that brought the boat and they run a business that goes back and forth. I mean, it seems crazy yeah, to think that they yeah, can get away with it. it's easy to sort of pass the buck. Yeah. Like how? Like say that they've dropped it off somewhere? Or? Well, there are just a lot of people involved and it's sort of like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I do you know? No, I don't know. I think that's uh, maybe why the owner of the boat refused to speak with me. 
Um, I, you know, I have no idea. None of it really makes any sense in retrospect. Right. Yeah. Um, the fact that they lied about the location of the boat, the fact that they wouldn't tell me when they knew I was looking for my motorcycle. Oh, we've got your motorcycle. It's on our boat. It's on the slot down here. Yeah, you can ride down to it. I mean, it makes sense. But but let me ask you, though, while this is all going on, mm-hmm. did you happen to look into going any further from that point? Well, yeah, that was the plan. That was Yeah, but plan. I mean, did you do that while you were dealing with the chaos of your bike being missing? Yeah, we had uh, we had spoken to a couple other people. And, and at this point, it's a very small town. So we were there for a couple of days and, you know, we had gotten to know some of the locals. And one of them said, hey, my son can take you to Cabo Pantoja which is, again, it's just a few hours up the river, but uh, uh, Nuevo Rocafuerte is on the Ecuadorian side of the border, and Cabo Pantoja is on the Peruvian side of the border. And they have an immigration office there. We had stamped out with immigration in Ecuador. Um, We couldn't cancel the TIP. But so the next, a couple days later, his son took us up the river, and this was like, I don't know, I think it was like a couple hours on the boat. loaded the motorcycle and all our gear in this very narrow long boat. And this thing was nearly capsizing the entire trip. It was, it was, it was was a bit nerve wracking. I thought we were going to pitch into the river. And we were very top heavy. Yeah, we were very top heavy. And uh, so we finally, we make it a couple hours across the border, up the river. We're still on the Napo River. And he was supposed to take us. We had kind of timed our arrival, which was supposed to be the next boat, the boat that was going to take us from, from Cabo Pantoja to Iquitos, Peru. And Iquitos is a major city. It's the second largest city on the Amazon River. Mm-hmm. So we had timed the arrival of this next boat so we could, we could just transfer the motorcycle directly from the small boat to the larger boat. Well, he didn't take us to the boat. He just dropped us off on the shore in front of Cabo Pantoja and he took off. Well, we discovered shortly thereafter that the water level was so low that the boat couldn't actually make it to the shore. It was across the river. And so now we would have to load the motorcycle on another boat, go across the river, and then transfer it to the big boat. Oh, you're even actually on the wrong side of the river. We're on the well, I mean, it would have been the right side because normally that's where everything gets picked up. But, but the water level was so low that it was just impossible. Oh, I see. So what, what the other side was the outside of a bend or something? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. The, boat, the, the boat couldn't, yeah. The boat couldn't make it to shore uh, where the city was. And we, we had to go to Cabo Pantoja anyway, because that's where immigration, Peruvian immigration was. Mm-hmm. So we had to go there anyway. So Chad, let me just interrupt for a second. So, so everybody gets a visual for this. Basically what you're doing is you're going from West to East across um, South America, really. exactly. This is through the heart of the Amazon at the widest part of the South American continent. Okay. So if you look at the map of South America and you see basically the farthest East point in Brazil, we're, we're kind of drawing a straight line to that point. Okay. So we'll, we'll put that map in the show notes. So if somebody wants to look at it, they can go and, and look at that. Okay. Every time we hear about Africa on this show, we hear about incredible landscapes, diverse culture. It's often referred to as the ultimate adventure motorcycle trip. Well, Renadian Adventures specializes in adventure motorcycle trips into Africa. 
Renadian Adventures is owned by Rene Cormier. And Rene did his own round-the-world trip on $25 a day. He's the author of University of Gravel Roads, a great book about an incredible adventure that chronicles his trip. Rene says that Africa is safe to travel because on their trips, they mainly ride in rural areas and stay in upscale lodges at night. They've got new BMWs to rent and a full-time Renadian crew based in Cape Town to help with planning, etc. The routes can either be paved or with some gravel, and they've got a backup chase vehicle, and that's for anything they need along the way that they've got to carry with them, but it's also a place for pillions that don't want to ride yet still want to see the sights that their partner's seeing. So Renee says they get pillions every year that want to ride in the van, and that's fine because that's what it's for. And for you as a rider, if you have an issue, that's what the van is there for. I mean, if you had some reason that you wanted to not ride for that day. Renee says that Renadian Adventures Africa trips are the most vacation-y of their guided tours. They're nice adventures during the day with lots of comfort at night. And that riders that are new to international touring will find Africa as a great starting destination. Renadian.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Renadian.com. Hexinnovate.com is the inventor of the GS911. Now, in case you're not aware, that's the diagnostic tool that has changed the lives of many BMW riders. The GS911 allows you to see inside the computer system that runs BMW motorcycles. It can check fault codes and help diagnose problems in the system in a way that only a dealership could before. It's truly revolutionary. It can save you the expense not only of a dealership visit, but also the GS911 gives you some peace of mind while you're riding your bike, well, anywhere, because if something goes wrong with your BMW, instead of it being left as a dead bike at the side of the road of the trail, you pull out your GS911 out of your pocket and begin checking systems. It's a game changer for BMW riders and probably should be a staple for every BMW rider toolkit. So that's the GS911. Now, Hex Innovate also invented the EasyCan Accessory Manager. Now, the EasyCan is a device that plugs into well, all kinds of motor, uh, modern motorcycles into their CAN bus system, not just BMWs, Harleys, Ducatis, KTMs, Husqvarna's, Triumph, Yamaha, Honda. The EasyCan allows you to add accessories without cutting a bunch of wires and potentially voiding your warranty and or messing up the system. It allows you to use your existing controls to turn accessories on or off. It's like an amazingly powerful unit. If you add an accessory to your bike and you have a CAN bus system, then you should look at the EasyCan. Even the OEMs like the EasyCan, the, the manufacturers do, because it's a way for riders to add electrical accessories without creating issues in the motorcycle's electrical system. Now, the person behind Hex Innovate, who makes the GS911 and the EasyCan, is an avid motorcyclist just like you and I. And I think that's a huge part of what makes companies like Hex Innovate so great, is that, that passion behind the company itself. The website is hexinnovate.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in the that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Hexinnovate.com. So no sooner do we finally get to Cabo Pantoja, you know, after all the, the chaos and confusion with, you know, the motorcycle on the Ecuadorian side, that we have to then load the motorcycle into yet another boat, another small boat, go across the river where we are supposed to transfer it to the larger boat. Well, we get across the river 
And we discovered that the larger boat isn't a larger boat. It's, it's a fast boat. It's a passenger boat. And there's no way to get the motorcycle on it. Mm. despite the fact that people have told us, oh yeah, no problem, yeah. no problem. There's your solution. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so we then have to backtrack to Cabo Pantoja with the motorcycle in tow. And the cargo boat, the lancha as they call it, isn't scheduled to be there for another five days. <laughs> so we are now stuck in this small community of Cabo Pantoja for the next five days. So what is this place and what does it look like? It is... It's basically, it's a military base on the Ecuadorian-Peruvian border. It's got a few streets. It's got a school. Um, do you remember how many inhabitants it had? Oh, gosh, no, I don't remember at all. I, I don't think I ever had a sense for it. It's yeah. so tiny. Yeah, I mean, I think there's pro I think there might have been 400 people that lived there, if I recall correctly. And is there any setup for tourism at all? There is a, um, a hot, a, excuse me, a hostel that is run by the municipalidad, that's run by the yeah, city. It's a city hostel. And oh, it, is, it is very bare bones. Um, you know, it's just got, you know, no screens on the windows or the screens that they had were more whole than screen. Um, <laughs> yeah, we tried to repair their screens, but yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah, kind the, of useless. You know, uh, the mattresses were older than I was, um, you know, just very, very bare bones. Mm-hmm. And so we were going to be there for the next five days. Um, we took care of immigration. We kind of ended up befriending the mayor of the city in that time. I believe he was the Apu. Um, and he had, he had offered his boat because he has a boat. And he said, hey, if you guys would like to go up the river um, to one of the tributaries and go visit some indigenous communities, you know, I can have someone take you in my boat. So, you know, we had time to kill. We didn't have anywhere else to be. And you know, Jim, the interesting thing about the Amazon, so you've got like the major rivers, like the Napo and the Amazon are major rivers. And they are almost like the the highway, the super highway for the Amazon jungle basin. It's where mm-hmm. all the car- cargo ships run. Um, it's where all the traffic is. But it's the smaller tributary rivers that you can navigate up. And that's where you really get into the heart of the Amazon like the true jungle. And that's where many of these indigenous communities exist. And I mean, they still have uncontacted tribes uh, in the Amazon, in these regions. Mm. There are some tributaries that the locals will not even take you up. Mm. Uh, they won't go up them up there themselves. Yeah, they're to remain uncontacted. Yeah. Uh, oh, just for that reason, because they, they want to sort of preserve it. Well, if, if you know the history of the Amazon, it's not about preservation. It's that um, the the uncontacted tribes wish to remain that way. Yeah, you're not welcome. Yeah, you're not welcome and they, they will kill you. Um, oh, I see. That's yeah. a deterrent for sure. Yeah, if you look at the history of the Amazon, you know, when Henry Ford came down there with the, the rubber tree plantations, because that's where they were getting all the rubber for tires. Mm-hmm. And they went and slaughtered and enslaved a lot of the indigenous people. And which, which drove a lot of the indigenous communities further into the heart of the Amazon. And so they do not regard outsiders kindly, understandably so. And, And so there are uncontacted tribes. There are a lot of indigenous communities where visitors are not welcome. Uh, this so happened to be an indigenous community that welcomes visitors. And so we went 
four or five, you know, we left the bike in Cabo Pantoja. We went four or five hours up the river in a small boat, went to one of the, the tributary rivers uh, on the Peruvian side of the border and ended up in this small indigenous community. I think there were like seven to nine families there, maybe about 40 people. Yeah, about 40 people. Um, and, we, you know, we've made these various forays into the, the Amazon before. And a lot of times when you go to these cities, you know, they have kind of like these very, you know, I don't want to say gimmicky, but, you know, they will offer commercial tours up these tributary rivers to these indigenous communities. But a lot of times these are kind of like, they're very touristy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they kind of, the, the, the people dress up in their indigenous garb and they do a dance, yeah. you know, they'll paint your face. Yeah. They oh, paint your face right. and they sell, you know, they make, you know, jewelry and trinkets and everything and they want to sell those. But I have really mixed feelings when it comes to that because it feels, I mean, I've talked to people about this and, and, you know, indigenous people are kind of split. Some people think it's a good thing because, you know, it helps preserve the traditions um, and it helps bring money into these communities that they might not otherwise have. Other people feel like it's exploitative. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of lean that direction. It just feels a little gross to me. Yeah, it doesn't feel right. Yeah, it's just like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, dress up and dance for my shekels. It just like, I don't like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we, we generally try to avoid, and we've, we've done that more times than I would like to admit, but we generally try to avoid kind of the, the gimmicky, indigenous communities where they do that? Well, sometimes you don't really know because it's oftentimes sold as, you know, it's going to be a legit, you know, community. And then you get there and it's kind of like a, I don't know what to say, like a a rolling. It's almost like a theme park. Yeah. But I mean, Mm -hmm. these are obviously legitimate communities, but I I digress. Um, So we get to this indigenous community and it is not one of these at all. As a matter of fact, it was a little uncomfortable when we got there because it was quite clear that some of the people, we weren't welcomed by everybody. And we weren't oh. expected either. It's not like we could, or, you know, the people who were taking us had any way to, you know, let them know ahead of time. It's sort of like you just right. show up and yeah. it's like, right. uh, you know, what are you guys doing here? And so they had to actually ask, um, you know, they don't, they call them indigenous communities. They don't call them like native villages and they don't, they don't call it the chief. They call it the Apu. He is like the, the community elder. Uh, and so they literally had us wait outside of their longhouse and spoke to the community elder to ask permission to allow us to stay there. Um, and they said, yes, they allowed us to stay there. We hung our hammocks in just like a abandoned building that they had there on the property in the community. Uh, and I mean, it, it was, it was very nice staying there. Uh, they took us to some of the lagunas and we went, you know, went spotlighting for giant black caiman and, um, you know, they just kind of showed us around for a couple days and it was very nice staying there, but it was, it was a different feeling. Um, you know, we were, we were out there and it was kind of the, the, the feeling that we weren't welcomed by everybody was kind of palpable. Mm. And, and so, what do you have to offer them really? Well, they charge us $10 US to stay there per person. Mm-hmm. Which, so, which is quite high then. Um, I, I mean, I don't know how that compares. I mean, it was. Probably, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could it could be. And we we bought. They did. They were selling some some jewelry that um, some of the women there in the community made, and we bought a couple things. And I you see. know, they fed us and everything. You know, very very nice. But it was just it was fun sitting there with with the kids and 
you know, watching the adults play football and everything. It was just like, you know, it was, it was just, you know, and they were wearing board shorts and, and, uh, you know, rip curl t-shirts, you know, nobody was like wearing the, the, uh, banana leaf. Yeah. Nobody was wearing (laughs) like the traditional, you know, costumes, but it's kind of nice that you go and, and you're interacting as far as like you didn't show up with all your gear and your camp equipment, your food and, and just set up and, and eat and say there you, you sort of joined in and, and bought things from them. And, and I guess that's part of um, the, you making a connection with them in, in a certain way. Yeah. And we were certainly a novelty. I mean, the kids loved us. We were playing around with the kids. You know, the kids just thought we were fascinating. We actually got our drone out and we were flying the drone around. And of course, everybody you just loved the drone. They thought that was really cool. Um but so anyway, we, we killed, we killed some time doing that. And then we returned back to, uh, Cabo Pantoja in time for the big boat, in time for the Lancho. And we had to, again, kind of go through the, the whole process of transferring the motorcycle to a smaller boat, taking that to the larger boat. They used a hoist that was on the big boat to, big boat to hoist the motorcycle on board. And this is really where, um, this is really where things got interesting. <laughs> so this is a basically like a double decker boat. It's got the 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 bottom deck is the cargo deck and then there's a passenger deck above that. And if you've ever seen these pictures of these videos where everyone's got their hammocks slung up and everybody's on the boat and just sleeping in their hammocks kind of shoulder to shoulder, mm-hmm. this is one of those boats. And we were going to be on this boat for like four or five nights on our way to Iquitos, Peru. And along the way, the boat stops multiple times a day mm-hmm. because this is That's the- day and night. Day and night. It stops mm-hmm. multiple times a day, day and night, loading passengers, unloading passengers, loading cargo, because this is like the main highway. And this is one of the only boats that operates in this part of the Amazon. So anybody that needs to get to the big city, anybody that needs to, you know, sell livestock, um, a lot of people are selling plantains, mountains and mountains of plantains, Jim. I mean, tons of plantains. Um, We're getting loaded on the boat, you know, day and night. But it's a very, um, yeah, this is not a tourist trip by any means. This is very utilitarian. Uh, it's what the locals use for transport. Um, it's what they use to ship cargo. And it is, the conditions are, the conditions are very harsh. Uh, there were a lot of sick and injured people on the boat. Um, mm. They were loading and unloading animals. Um, and we're talking about, you know, bulls, pigs, chickens in a very... I don't want to say abusive because that almost sounds like I'm being judgmental, but I would say in a very inhumane fashion. Well, it's mm. just cargo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's horrible, isn't it? I mean, by our standards, yeah, it would be abusive though. It very much so. And I mean, yeah. as a matter of fact, you know, because there is, there are no docks, there are, there's no easy way to load or unload a motorcycle or a full grown bull. And so what they would well, they op- never go willingly is the problem. No. So no. they're basically, you know, in a lot of instances, they're dragging these animals with a rope around their neck. And, you know, one person's, you know, you got three guys with the rope around the neck and another two guys yanking the tail, uh, you know, and in one case, they were trying to get bulls from the small boat to the big boat and one of the bulls drowned. And oh, so man. they brought it on the boat and they just cleaned it and dressed it right there on the deck of the boat. And that's what we ate. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. 
Yeah. So, so it, it was free food for everybody because they killed it. Yeah. Yeah. And they couldn't let the meat go to waste. And so literally. Yeah. yeah they know, cleared one of the freezers and put the, uh, well, there was just so much meat. Yeah. There was a lot yeah. of meat. There was a lot of meat, but yeah, that's, that was our dinner for the next, you know, few nights. But I mean, aside from that, the food on the boat is just most of the food because food is part of the trip is just porridge and boiled plantains. Um, you know, so the food was, you know, pretty horrendous for the most part. And people don't drink coffee. So we had to kind of tip the cook to heat water f- up for us, you know, so we could have coffee. And, you know, and they pulled the water, of course, right out of the river. So they had to boil it because the, the rivers are actually, uh, the main rivers are actually quite dirty because they just dump their trash directly into the river. Um, you know, and that's their, their source of sanitation. That's their sewage as well. Mm, so, you know, sad, the, isn't it? Yeah. The rivers themselves are not, I mean, you know, anaconda, piranha aside, just based upon like the, the bacteria levels in the, it's not something you want to swim around in, mm. um, which is, you know, unfortunate. Let me just ask you a question about this boat. Rose, yeah. what were the washrooms like? Uh, the washrooms, well, they double as your shower if you so choose to shower. <laughs> uh, no, it's just everything is, um, you know, rusted and... You know, I, I mean, you can't really, you can't really describe sort of like the smell and the heat and just the, you know, I mean, but it is what it is. You know, you kind of get used to it. Yeah, but it's functional. You, you had washrooms, you had shower. Yeah. I mean, everything goes uh, straight into the river and comes straight out of the river. So it's all kind of, um, yeah, one of the times um, somebody on the boat uh, saw me sort of like cleaning my face with the the river water that comes out of the sink. And he showed me a rash that he had on his face and kind of advised me not to, to be doing that. So, oh. so, so you said, if you want to shower, is that why you didn't shower? No, no, I would. I mean, it's just, it's so hot and so sweaty. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spend, you know, too much time worrying on, on that sort of thing. So no, I, I just, I did what everybody else did. Right. Yeah, there, there were two, you know, so it's basically, it's a small metal box. It has a toilet with no toilet seat. Uh, and it has just a pipe with a valve that comes out of the ceiling. There's no like shower head or anything. And it's literally, they're just pumping water out of the river. And that's what you bathe in. And unfortunately mm-hmm. on this boat in particular, one of the toilets was clogged just about the entire trip. So there's probably about, uh, I'm just going to throw a dart and guess that maybe there's 50 passengers on this boat and there was one toilet. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, and everyone's trying to shower and, and do what they do. So it was, yeah, it wasn't necessarily all that convenient or sanitary. Um, yeah, the one thing I wouldn't do is the uh, toothbrush in the water thing. It's just right. yeah, <laughs> probably not the best sense. idea. <laughs> so did you guys bring water with you knowing that this was going to be the case? You have to. You were told yeah. to that they wouldn't provide water. Yeah, you have right. to bring that. Drinking one, water. They, they serve food, but you have to bring your own drinking water on the boat because there is no drinking water. Mm-hmm. Um, or just do what I do and, uh, you know, did and purchase beer. Um, cause they do sell beer on the boat. They don't sell water, but they do sell beer. So, oh, I see. Mostly water. <laughs> survivalist tip. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it was just the, the conditions are very harsh. And since there are so many people coming and going, one of the things that we read uh, online was that you have to be very uh, mindful of your belongings. Cause there, there is a lot of traffic on these boats and t- things have a tendency to disappear. Mm. But you've got your hammock slung up and it was like every day that you might have a new neighbor, yeah. um, you know, and, and quite often it's, it's difficult to sweet sleep because the guy in the hammock next to you is swinging into you. 
Um, you know, so everyone's just sort of packed on there and, and they're, you know, like I said, there were sick and injured people just without even hammocks, just like laying on the floor. Yeah, one woman, uh, they brought her on, uh, men were carrying her sort of in this sheet and um, they laid her down, you know, sort of close to us. And, and Chad, at one point, uh, since he does have a medical background, he asked, well, through a translator, because she spoke Quechua, which is uh, one of the indigenous languages, uh, asked if he could tend to her, if he could help her. Um, yeah, she had, she had several uh, medical issues happening. two things to tell you about, but we're going to be back with more to the story. Stay with us. The Alice Throttle Lock is not only a thing of beauty, but a marvel of engineering. It's designed by a rider just like you, David Winters, David and Heidi Winters from their round the world trip they did on their KTM. This is a tiny little device that clamps onto your handlebar in seconds, yet transforms your bike and your comfort level. It's designed like a Swiss watch, finely crafted from metal with two buttons on it, one for engage, the other for disengage, and the tactile feedback from them is perfect. So when I press those buttons, I don't need to look. I can feel what I'm doing. Pressing engage holds my throttle at the position I set it at, and then I just twist to add more or less throttle, and it holds the new position. That allows my hand time to relax and uncramp, and with that, my wrist, my forearm, my upper arm, even my shoulder feels better with the Atlas Throttle Lock. And another bonus is it's easy to move from one bike to another. So if you're selling your bike, you don't have to let it go with it. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. Your foot pegs are not just your connection to your motorcycle. Obviously, that's really important, but they're also a tool for you to control your bike. In fact, I would say arguably they're one of the most important tools when riding slow or on challenging surfaces. With a correct foot peg, you have more leverage to control your motorcycle, especially a heavy or loaded adventure bike. And the correct foot peg is one that is designed professionally for adventure riding, specifically. It's manufactured as tough as nails, maybe tougher than nails, and, and is designed in a way that suits your riding style. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, just like I described there, that are designed specifically for your style of riding. They use cast certified 17-4 stainless steel and a certified heat treating process. They're made in the USA and they're warranted for life. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio imsproducts.com. Well, I didn't re so I had seen her. Yeah. And I think they had her in a hammock. They, they basically just carried her on the boat using a hammock, like a stretcher and kind of just plopped her down on the ground and left. And she was in her, I believe late sixties and she was on the boat with her granddaughter. And, uh, the grandma spoke Quechua. The, the granddaughter spoke Spanish and then there was a Colombian woman on the boat that spoke both Spanish and English. And, you know, our Spanish is passable, but it's not good enough for like a medical examination. Mm -hmm. And so I asked the, uh, I asked the Colombian woman, I said, what, you know, cause at first I just thought that the woman was, you know, elderly and infirmed. Um, but then I noticed that she was, um, favoring her arm quite a bit. 
And I, I asked, I was like, do you know what's wrong with that woman? She's like, yeah, she's got a broken wrist. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, well, do me a favor, talk to the granddaughter and, you know, I've got medical supplies, I've got splints, I've got, you know, everything, see if she would like me to tend to the grandmother. So they say yes. And so we go over and I kind of, I put a splint on her and everything. Come to find out she had had a dislocated shoulder and a broken wrist for months. Oh. Um, her, her arm. And I don't, you know, I don't know if the bone just wasn't fusing, but she lived in a, in a house that was basically on a platform and she fell off the platform about 12 feet down to the ground months earlier wow. and had had a dislocated shoulder and, and fractured wrist the entire time. So did, was a shoulder back in place then? No, it wasn't. It was basically and just hanging. It was oh. hanging there. And I was very reluctant to, I didn't want to set it because with someone as, you know, when someone that's elderly, uh, you want to do that in a medical setting because, you know, I didn't want to risk like doing more damage. Yeah. And so splinted the arm and put like a, a, a sling on it, but it was the next day she had me take it off because it was so hot. Are you familiar with Sam splints? Yeah. Yeah. I have those as well. Yeah. So I had a Sam splint on her with like an ACE bandage to hold it in place to try to splint her wrist, but it was so hot that she couldn't stand having it on. When I took it off, it was just like her entire arm was just covered with sweat. and pr- So uh, it's, the Sam splint, for those who don't know, is, is sort of basically it's an aluminum sheet with foam on either side. Yeah, exactly. And you can bend this into any shape. They're fantastic. Yeah, they're amazing. They're amazing. But it was just so, it was, the conditions themselves were very, very eye-opening. Yeah. Um, you know, you spend four or five nights with people and, you know, you get you get a glimpse into sort of their reality, their everyday. Um, and so many people, families mostly would load on, load off, load on, load off. And you, you kind of, you know, you got, you get to see each other during the day, at night, everything. Um, you don't like go off into your own hotel room or anything like that. So the things that I noticed was no matter what child came on the boat, no matter how many families, not one child had a toy, not Mm. one. Uh, no electronic devices, nothing. It was just, um, it was odd to me, you know, literally not one toy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're essentially playing with like empty beer cans and, you know, or just whatever clothes or, you know, whatever they had, they were, you know, they were perfectly happy with it as well. So it was just, yeah, it was very, it was a very, uh, opening journey. This is not a tourist route, as you mentioned. This is no. this is a working boat, so um, you're you're completely removed from any sort of the comforts or or the the blinders set up by by tourism. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and we don't live you know lives that are very like uh, sheltered, but mm-hmm. even for us, I think it was eye opening, or I should say, for me anyway. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad that we did it, just because I don't think it's. Um, really the same to do sort of those tourist tours and, and think that you've done it. You know, I think I, I'm, yeah, very eye-opening. Mm-hmm. So we finally, after I think four or five no- nights on that boat, uh, we arrive in Iquitos and we arrived very late at night. So we had to wait for the morning to unload the boat. And again, water levels insanely low. And we had to have, I think, I, I can't remember how many people, but they had to build a ramp and assist me with getting the motorcycle up the very steep uh, slope, the embankment of the river. Uh, but I mean, one of the most disturbing things here was that they had to unload the all the livestock as well. And they basically resorted to just booting full-grown bulls off the deck of the boat 
about eight to 10 feet down to the ground. And I mean, these, these oh. bulls were landing on their heads. We saw one go paralyzed. Yeah, it was awful. Oh. They were just chucking pigs from the main deck of the main boat down to into smaller, like wooden boats below. It was, it was very, yeah, oh it, it was a very, yeah, um, just like they were. That's tough to potatoes. watch. It, it is. And some people I kind of got like, I was, you know, as you know, we do the YouTube thing. So I was filming all this and, and somebody on the boat actually was like, they asked me like, why are you filming that? This is disgusting. And oh, I just really? said, look, I'm not here to pass judgment. I'm just here to observe. Exactly. You know, it's just like, I don't live their lives. Um, again, like Rose said earlier, it's just like the animals are cargo. It's a commodity, you know? And so it's, it's, you know, it's very dangerous passing judgment on what people do or how they live in these situations. So I was just there to observe. I didn't mm -hmm. like it. It was uncomfortable, you know, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, it is what it is. So, um, so we arrive in Iquitos. Now I had been in Iquitos, uh, Peru 17 years ago, obviously without a motorcycle. This was my first trip into the Amazon. Uh, I went there on my own for my 30th birthday and the city had changed a lot in 17 years. It is a major tourist destination for people that want to go and drink ayahuasca. I don't know if you're familiar with ayahuasca. Yeah. Yes. And, and for those who don't, it's a, it's a, a, a drug that people take to have, um, I guess, an experience, some sort of experience to find themselves. I mean, it's derived from the natives, the indigenous peoples who um, used it for, I'm like, through a shaman for their own uh, experience. I was going to say religious, but it's not really, maybe it's not religious experience, but their experience. And, and it's become quite a tourist thing. It's very much so. And when I was there 17 years ago, it wasn't much of a tourist destination. Um, now it is. And I think there are a lot of people that maybe came to Iquitos for a, um, like a, a, a two week ayahuasca trip and they were mm -hmm. still there six years later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you think still doing ayahuasca or what were they there for? Oh, I think they were way, way past that point. No, there, <laughs> right. there were some interesting, there were some very interesting characters in town there. Yeah, that was actually the first city where I refused to walk alone. Uh, I had to have Chad with me in that city. Oh, right. Because you, you, you've always done that. You haven't worried about it at all. Yeah. I mean, it's not that I was so much worried. It's just that there's, um, there's a constant barrage of male suitors there that just don't take no for an answer. Uh. So um, when we go out together, there's actually a barrage of a different kind where it's like, you know, what are that they're trying to... They're trying to sell ayahuasca tours into the jungle and whatnot. And they, they right. just won't leave you alone. But yeah, Rose uh, Rose had different propositions when she tried to walk out on her own. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I see. stuck with well, Chad on that one. So, uh, so we... I have to say, I'm embarrassed for males when I hear that sort of stuff. I really am. <laughs> I, I just, it's, it's, it's terrible. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, and obviously it's different in different parts of the world, but of uh, course. Yeah. 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 So we, uh, we spent about a week, I think exactly a week in Iquitos and I had to, they actually had a, uh, an Adwana customs office there who had no idea how to issue a TIP because mm. there are no roads into Iquitos. So oh, right. So you don't have, have any, no use for it. They have no overlanders showing up. And there was, I mean, I'm, like I said, we're not the first to do it. So other people had done it in the past, but it was just, it was a process. Uh, but I did get the TIP, which I had actually considered not doing at one point. I figured, okay, I'll just deal with it when we get to Manaus. But 
as it turns out, I'm very glad that I did. Um, so we ended up taking another boat from Iquitos a week later uh, to an area called Tres Fronteras. Uh, and at this point, we're on the Amazon River. So Tres Fronteras is a very interesting uh, area where Brazil, Peru, and Colombia all collide in this very small section. Colombia kind of dips down in this, this odd little appendage right down to the edge of the Amazon River there. And it's where all three cities exist. Uh, Santa Rosa, Peru is on one side of the river. And on the other side of the river, you have these twin cities of Leticia, Colombia and Tabatinga, Brazil. And it's an open border. So you can travel freely between the two. Um, so we were on this boat for three nights and it was a larger boat. It had two passenger decks. Uh, and this trip was fairly uneventful, especially compared to our previous trip. The only two things that, that really stand out was one, the boat kept getting stuck in sandbars. Mm. Because I was the, going to ask you about that. I, I was going to ask that because, because of this 125 year low and what you're describing for the unloading and loading of these boats, I was wondering, is there, is there any danger in the highway being shut down due to just that? Absolutely. Yeah, we would be stuck for hours. And this was, this was the lowest it's been in anyone's lifetime. So as a result, like a lot of the cargo ships that generally run either weren't running because they had too deep of a draft or they were running with limited cargo. So they would sit higher in the water. Um, but yeah, this, this boat in particular, we got stuck a few times and we were stuck for hours. Just, wow, you know, and they, they have a, they have like a small shore boat that they would get off with like a, I don't know, like a 25 horsepower outboard motor on the back. And they would just use this to try to push the big boat off the sand. And again, oh, sometimes it just took hours to get, you know, off the sandbar. Um, and, and, and this is why I ended up being glad that I got the TIP. So I think on our last day and we were running behind schedule, I actually ended up think we, I think we ended up spending one night longer on the boat than we were originally scheduled to because we kept getting stuck in the sand and the last night we were on the boat, there was a massive storm on the Amazon. I mean, it was biblical. Well, describe the storm. What is the storm there? It, just a giant uh, rainstorm, a giant thunderstorm. Deluge. Yeah, just, mm. it, just incredible lightning and thunder, uh, just water coming out of the sky in buckets. And the, the, you know, the, the top of the boat, it's got a, a flat cover over the passenger decks. And it was raining so hard that the, the top of the boat couldn't shed the water fast enough through the scuppers. And so it was coming down through these, these scupper drains and flooding the passenger decks. Oh. And so everybody's got their, their gear, their bags, their belongings. And most people's luggage is really just like plastic bags or paper bags. Um, you know, but the, the passenger decks are getting flooded. So everyone's trying to pick their stuff up because everyone's stuff's getting wet. And mm. the boat actually blew into shore with a giant thud. I mean, people were falling over. Yeah, um, all of the hammocks just sort of just rushed to the, the front of the boat. Yeah, they were bumping into each other like dominoes. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're saying this happened, the, the boat was still moving. You were traveling. We were traveling. We were traveling. Oh, and then yeah. we just got blown into shore by the wind. Jeez. And they had to end up uh, just, uh, you know, they didn't anchor. I don't know what they did. They tied off to shore or something. But we ended up staying there for a few hours. Um, until the storm passed. And this was in the middle of the night. So, you know, there was all sorts of chaos in the middle of the night, you know, probably like midnight was when we blew into shore and everybody was up. Everybody was trying to get their, their luggage off the floor. 
So I, I think I probably got back in my hammock about 1 a.m. to try to go back to sleep. And the next thing you know, like an hour later, I've got a crew member like shaking my hammock to wake me up. And he's telling me, policia, policia. I don't know what's going on. So I grab my paperwork from my motorcycle. I go downstairs. Customs, the, the uh, federal police and customs had boarded the vessel while we were tied up on shore. And they were demanding the paperwork for my motorcycle. Oh. And I was so, because I had I'd really, getting the TIP in, in Iquitos had been such a pain in the butt and I had considered not doing it. I'm so glad I had that TIP. Because if I hadn't, I have no idea. Because once I showed it to him, you know, they looked at it with the flashlight downstairs and he just like nodded his head, gave it back to me and he moved on. But had I not had that TIP, I don't know what they would have done. Holy shit. And you don't even know where you are really at that point. Yeah, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we're, we're nowhere yeah. we're supposed to be. And I think the aduana or the federal police, maybe they were patrolling the river and they just saw this boat tied up that shouldn't be there. And they're like, okay, well, let's go check this out. Mm-hmm. So, um... Yeah. So then what happened? So then we finally get to Tres Fronteras. This is where Brazil, uh, Peru, and Colombia all meet. And this is a all-out chaotic scene. <laughs> this is like a major port. It's where three countries collide. And Santa Rosa, Peru, on the side of the river where the boat doesn't dock, where the, where the boat lands, that's where we now have to go for customs and immigration to check out of Peru. And since this is one of the major cargo ships for the area, and there's passengers, there's people that are going to Colombia, there's people that are going to Brazil, we, we have all these small passenger boats, these wooden passenger boats with outboard motors are all crowding around the main boat. You know, we're, we're, you know, we've landed in this very like shallow sandbar on the Peruvian side of the river, and it's just like, it's just chaos. Everyone's trying to get their cargo off the boat. This is the final stop. Passengers coming and going. And I think it took us like two hours after we landed to finally get the motorcycle off the boat. And it was a team effort. I think it was like eight guys. And they had to construct a plank with guys on the shore holding the planks on their shoulder. And they rolled the motorcycle on the planks. <laughs> really? Really? Support it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got the we've, pictures. We've got pictures. I got the pictures. No, no. Do you have to pay all these people that are helping you do this? You do. You do. Yeah, you absolutely. Do. <laughs> They're not going to help you otherwise. Yeah. yeah. Well, that would make sense. Yeah. yeah. And it's the only, and that was one of the, you know, luckily of the research that we ended up doing, we knew to take plenty of cash with us mm -hmm. because otherwise, you know, there's no way that Rose and I would be able to get these, the motorcycle on and off these boats on our own. So yeah, you've got to pay these helpers uh, in order to help you get your gear on and off the boat. I think you, you've you've given us that photo for the show notes, correct? Uh, I, I'm not sure if I've given you the the photos yet. I will. I'll send those. Okay, because the plank—they're actually holding it on their shoulder, and you're riding or you're rolling the bike along. Yeah, I stayed out <laughs> of the way. I I, I kind because of, these guys they they know what they're doing. They have their shorthand. And I realized in the past when I try to help them load and unload the motor, I'm just in the way. Oh, and so it's just like, I just kind of, I'll stand back. I take photos, I take videos, and I just kind of watch with one eye. <laughs> because you never know, <laughs> you know, if your, your motorcycle is going to end up in the river. So, and, and in these situations, they often take risks with their own life and, and, and safety, really, with, that you just wouldn't approve of. Oh, Jim, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. You will see these guys carrying two 90-pound sacks of concrete on their shoulders 
walking up a 50 degree sandy slope in nothing but flip flops. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they're just human ants. I mean, these guys are, they're, they're bulls. They're so strong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even actually, even the women do it as well. Yeah. I'm always yeah, impressed right. by that. I'm like, God, what? I'm just not built like that. Yeah. yeah. They're just built differently. And it's just you know, to watch them. I mean, and at every stop where they're carrying plantains up and up, you know, up the bank, down the bank, to the boat, off the It's just, I mean, it's incredible. And it, it's so hot and humid. It's just, it's unforgiving. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. No, it's just, I stay out of the way as much it's as possible. It's a tough life. Yeah. It's, it's a very, very difficult life for mm-hmm. sure. Um, so we finally get the motorcycle off the main boat. And now I'm on this beach about a kilometer away from the city because, you know, the water level's so low, they can't get up to where they normally unload. So now I've got to, so we've unloaded the gear and Rose onto a smaller boat that's going to go across the river towards the Brazilian and Colombian side. But I have to take the motorcycle across a kilometer of sand on this beach to Santa Rosa, Peru to go to Aduana and immigration to get the paperwork stamped out. Mm-hmm. So now, now Rose is the one that is disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically I, I'm sitting on this small boat with all of our stuff. And, and there were a few times actually that they um, were kind of prompting me to move to a boat on my own and leave the gear on, you know, the original boat, which it's like at that point, you know, it's like, I'm responsible for making sure that when Chad gets back, if he gets back, that, you know, we have all of our stuff still in tow because we've gone this far and it's like, I can't lose our stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. It, it just sounds so chaotic. It absolutely like, is. Like, it, do you guys find it nerve wracking or stressful? You know, because you, you described coming into the shore and things, you know, people are scrambling off the boat and everything. Now you've got to arrange to get your bike off. Is that mm-hmm. all stressful to do? It can be very stressful, Jim. You kind of get into the mindset where you literally just sit back and just stare in awe at the chaos and really just kind of soak it in and appreciate it for what it is. Because mm-hmm. yeah, if it you, takes on a life of its own. If if you let it get to you, it's really, you know, you could easily lose your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just kind of like step back and tape it, take a deep breath and, and realize this is why I came here. You know, this is like, we couldn't have anticipated this. There was nothing that could have prepared us, but now we are here in the heart of all this chaos. And it's, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, just to try to soak it in, just be like, wow, this is a a wild spot on this planet. And I'm smack dab in the middle of it. Yeah. I think Mm -hmm. that's such a good way to put it is like, this is why we came here. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's the kind of adventure that you can't, you can't plan for. You you can't really anticipate, but once you're there, it's just like, you got to appreciate it for what it is. Yeah. At this point, how, how much further do you have to go? Are you halfway? (sighs) That is a good question. Um, Cause I think, I think the boat ride to Manaus, the final boat ride was another three or four days. So we're probably about two thirds of the way there, I would say. And at this point, are you guys like um, regretting your decision to do this route or are you loving it or how are you feeling? It's kind of like we were discussing the last time we were on the show, Jim. It's just like, it, it's too late to turn around now. You know what I mean? It's like, we're two thirds mm. of the way there. It's like, and we didn't want to turn and, and do it all over again. So it's like, you're almost compelled to keep going. 
It's just like, we can't stop now. We can't turn around now. You know, and at this point, honestly, you know, the, the, the Western leg of the trip into Iquitos was the harshest leg of the trip by far. The further West we got, or excuse me, the further East, east yeah. we got, the easier things got. So did you get the feeling that now that things are going to be easier? Yes, because the final boat that we would be taking out would be out of Brazil. Um, and we had already spent uh, a couple, like two and a half months in Brazil. Yeah, in the south. Yeah, in the mm. south of Brazil. And yeah, they definitely do things a bit differently in Brazil. Um, it was way more wild, wild west on the Ecuadorian, the Peruvian side. Um, Brazil is, um, you know, it's the largest economy in all of South America. It is a, um, you know, it's a, you know, I think the, the, the term first world, third world, I think those terms are outdated, but it is very much a first world country. Mm. Um, so, so we get off the boat. Uh, I have to ride up into Santa Rosa, um, do the customs thing, do the immigration thing, ride back down to the river <laughs> where, where Rose is waiting for me. I, I don't know how I was able to find Rose because I actually had to go to a different place than where the boat dropped us off. And there were, you know, probably no less than 60, 70 you know, small boats that look just like the boat I put her on. Yeah, they all look the same. They have the same <laughs> oh, color wow. awnings, everything. Yeah. So I somehow so found her. So you just own. found her by luck. Well. Or I mean, do you guys have some sort of sixth sense that draws you to one another in places like this? Could be. It could very well be, Jim. I don't know. <laughs> Tracking devices. <laughs> yeah. um, so I found her and then she had to take a moto taxi back up into town because she had to clear immigration herself. So she takes a moto taxi up to Santa Rosa, clears immigration. Then we have to take another boat trip across to the Colombian and the Brazilian side of the border. So more guys loading, more guys unloading, you know, back up. And we ended up spending, um, we actually checked into immigration on the Brazilian side. Uh, but we ended up spending like the next three or four days on the Colombian side of the border because the town had a little more to offer on the Colombian side. And you said you can cross the border, no problem. Yeah, it's an right. open yeah. border, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we spent we spent a few days in Colombia, but we never checked in with immigration or anything. We didn't have to. I see. Yeah. Um, we spent a few days there in uh, in Colombia until the next boat was ready to take us to um, Manaus. Now. This was a very uh, different setup than it had been on the boats in Peru and Ecuador. Um, those boats, it was just like you get on, you, you pay your money, you get on the boat, no fuss, no muss. Uh, you might make it there, you might not. This is again Brazil. And as it turns out, where we are at this Trace Fronteras is a major, major drug corridor into Brazil. Um, mm. I think combined Peru and Colombia end up producing like 80 or 90% of the world's cocaine. And Brazil is a major, major market for that. Well, it and, makes sense also, just the border, the way it's set up there. I mean, you've got these three cities that have um, an open border between mm -hmm. them. Correct. It's awful um, attractive, I would think, to a smuggler. And you've got the river that goes right, right. into like one of the, the, the largest city on the Amazon, which is Manaus, Brazil. Mm. So... Just to get on this boat, we had to, we had all sorts of paperwork. We had to fill out a, uh, a bill of lading for the motorcycle. Um, and then just to get on the boat, all the passengers have to let uh, line up and be interviewed by the federal police. 
and oh. they do a background check before you even get on the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, oh boy. You know, they wanted our passports. They wanted the bill of lading. They wanted everything. We've got all of the cargo. Everyone's got all their cargo lined up, you know, in individual lines so they can bring uh, drug sniffing dogs through. And then once you clear the background check, they still have an inspection station. You actually have to cross a federal police boat in order to get onto our boat. And they have an inspection station set up on the federal police boat in order to go through everyone's cargo Mm. before they allow you to get on the main boat. And the hilarious thing was, so um, (laughs) it still wasn't easy getting the motorcycle on this boat because I had to ride a ramp from the dock. They had a real dock, like a real concrete dock. But I had to ride a ramp from the dock onto the federal police boat. And then our boat was tied up next to that boat. And they had two planks of different lengths and different dimension tied up to each other. <laughs> and I tried to, I tried to, you know, because you don't want to be, uh, you know, you want to kind of gun it. You want to kind of get up there. You want to let your momentum carry you up these ramps onto the main mm-hmm. boat. So I think I hit it maybe a little too quickly. And since these planks were different dimension, they flexed at different rates. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and so like immediately, um, I think the smaller of the planks flexed to the point where my, one of my boxes or my crash bars um, hit the other plank and it, it pinched me. And I was afraid I was going to land in the river. <laughs> but, but luckily, like the federal police officers at the inspection station were right there. And these guys were hilarious because they were tearing through everybody else's cargo. They didn't check any of our cargo. They helped catch the bike. They helped load the bike. And then they were like taking selfies with us. They followed us on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) They just wanted to talk motorcycles with us. I mean, they were great. (laughs) Things were looking up for us. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. But so we we make it on the the boat in Brazil. This is the boat from uh, Tabatinga, Brazil um, to Manaus, Brazil. And this boat was going to be three or four days. Uh, A lot more I shudder to use the word civilized because that sounds judgmental. I don't what's a good, know. Another what's a good word? PC word. I don't know. Yeah. What's a good PC word for civilized, Jim? <laughs> Maybe advanced. Yeah. That, thank you. That'll work. A little um, more polished. Yeah. Polished. The, <laughs> the facilities on this boat were a bit more advanced, a bit more polished than they had been on the previous boats. Yeah, and so, including the food. Yeah, including the food, including everything. It still had like the the two passenger decks with the uh, with the hammocks and everything. Um, but being a major drug corridor as this was, we were boarded a couple times by the federal police, and uh, in one instance, they actually ended up arresting a couple of the guys on our boat for drug smuggling. Oh wow! Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, that was interesting. Um, and then at another time, we had to stop along the river at an inspection station. Mm-hmm. And this was in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And like everybody was asleep in their hammocks and the crew turned all the, the deck lights on and basically told everyone to line all of their luggage up in neat little lines on the deck. And it was funny because people that have obviously taken this journey before, this was our first time, but people that had taken the boat before, they knew the routine. We didn't. You know, so we were kind of like, you know, what's happening? What's going on? You know, why do we have to line all our stuff up? And the next thing you know, the federal police were on the boat with their drug sniffing dogs and they were not playing around. No, they were not. Um, Some guy said uh, something that I heard. He said, you know, and nobody be stupid like the last time. 
I, I guess somebody had taken a photo of the police doing their inspection and the, the, the federal police noticed and did not take kindly to that. Apparently there was like a, a much more scrutiny after that photo was taken. So we knew to sort of, yeah, it, it wasn't a joke. Yeah, and wow. I think I think that comment was probably directed at us because I mean they, they had seen us, oh, like, really? you know, well, yeah, we've got a GoPro, you know, and so we're just filming various things and whatnot for the for the YouTubes, and so yeah, I think that comment was probably, hey, Gringo, yeah, like, <clears throat> yeah no, no photos, no photos. <laughs> I, do you ever, uh, is there any concern or do you ever think about someone trying to use you guys as a mule, you know, hiding something on you in your gear or anything like that? We were specifically warned about that. We were uh, told by the federal police because on the, on the Peruvian Ecuadorian side, it was, it was keep an eye on your equipment so it doesn't disappear. On the Brazilian side, we were told keep an eye on your equipment so nobody tries to sneak anything in there. Oh uh, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so we were absolutely warned about that, but um, and then it's that yeah. whole story, like that's not mine. Yeah, yeah I know. But the, whether they use you to get it wherever it is, and then they'll steal it back from you. Yeah. So do you do you get sort of a little nervous when the dogs come on, and you think, "Geez, was I was I did I pay attention enough?" Yeah, I did, and I knew I didn't have anything. I was like, "Why yeah. am I scared?" Yeah, it's got to give you a butterfly. Just the thought that if if anybody did do anything, there's no way you're getting out of it. Well, you know, Jim, it's funny, and this is maybe something I shouldn't say since I'm still actually in Brazil, but, you know, I had inadvertently, so when you are in the highlands of like Peru and Bolivia, uh, coca leaves are very common. Uh, you chew on coca leaves to try to um, counter the effects of the altitude and everything, and uh, you can buy them in bags, very cheap, and, you know, we had both made a habit, or I don't think Rose did, but I had made a habit of of chewing on these coca leaves quite often. And so, you know, we're on the boat in Brazil at this point, and I had reached in my moto jacket pocket to grab something, and I realized, oh, you know, I had, had some long forgotten, like a small bag of long forgotten coca leaves in my in my moto jacket. Oh no. And so I was like, hmm. So I go on my phone, and this this is how polished this boat was. They even had Wi-Fi on the boat. I go on my phone and I look up. I was like, are coca leaves illegal in Brazil? And yes, they are. So oh, <laughs> I was sure to pitch my contraband overboard, overboard as soon as I could because yeah, <laughs> I had inadvertently smuggled coca leaves into Brazil on this major drug corridor. Wow. <laughs> that, that would have been unfortunate. It would have been a different kind of uh, conversation we're having right now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Yeah, Jim, <laughs> send us bail. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, other, other than like the, the, you know, the inspection from the federal police, I mean, the, the, the final three days or whatever it was to Manaus was fairly uneventful. Um, so we unload in Manaus and we had the option at this point to continue up the Amazon um, to, uh, what is it, Belém? Uh, Belém, yeah. Belém, which is at the mouth of the Amazon at the, at the Atlantic coast, or we can get off here at Manaus and ride the ghost road which I had really had my heart set on. So this concluded after basically we were on the river for a month. Um, after a month and 2000 kilometers on the river, this concluded that leg of the trip and we were back on the bike. Wow. And then how much further with, uh, on the bike? <sighs> well, we still had hmm, about 5,000 kilometers to go. Whew. Now, what sort of riding would you anticipate? Well, so the Ghost Road, um, the BR319, 
it's a very infamous road and it is not, you know, it's not on the, the typical route for those that ride the Pan Am, you know, cause the Pan American skirts the Western side of the continent and a lot of overlanders, you know, they sleep on, they completely skip Brazil. Um, so it's kind of known as, as one of those more like hardcore destinations for overlanders. I know that, uh, um, Spencer Conway and Kathy Neal, they rode the ghost road, um, as well as took a large part of this journey that we're discussing now. I'm not sure of their exact route, but I know that they have likewise crossed the Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, so we decided and the ghost road, you've seen pictures or videos online of people in these like chest deep mud ruts you know, stuck behind big rigs trying to like navigate through this hellish mud. Those are typically from the ghost road. Mm -hmm. Um, just so happened though, that not only was this dry season, but you know, we were in the middle of this historic drought. So luckily we didn't have any mud to contend with, but what we did have was a lot of truck traffic and a lot of dust. Um, Mm. and it was very hot. So this was, um, the ghost road, I think is about 900 kilometers and extends from Manaus, Brazil down to Porto Velo. The first 200 kilometers, you know, of course there's another ferry to get across to the ghost road from Manaus, but the two first 200 kilometers is pavement. The last 200 kilometers is pavement. The middle 500 kilometers is, is dirt and sand. There's no gas. Um, and I actually screwed up cause I missed our last gas stop. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I could, I'd been off the bike for the month for a month. I was a little rusty and I just completely, somebody had told me where to get gas and it was kind of at the end of the pavement and I blew it by about two hours and there are no gas stations for about 500 kilometers. And I was warned that you can buy gas, you know, from little shops and everything along the way. Um, but the gas is adulterated. So I had the choice. It's like, okay, I either backtrack two hours or I take, you know, I take my chances with the gas. So I took my chances with the gas and luckily that worked out. The watered down gas, the adulterated gas. Right, right. But don't you carry extra fuel as well? We do. But uh, what I'd failed to do was um, we had to empty out our fuel containers when we were on the boats. And so I did not have any of our fuel containers filled. Uh, That's the downside of those containers. They have to be filled. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out, turns out. Yeah, and if you use them, they have to be refilled. Right, Um, yeah, yeah. that's right. I hadn't thought of that either. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I had totally spaced it. I thought that the the last fuel stop was somewhere else. And by the time I realized it, it was too late. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was our first night there and I I was kind of kicking myself in the butt. And, um, you know, at the same time we had run into, because we hadn't seen, you know, riders in a long time. We'd been on the boats. But at the same time, we saw another rider coming in the opposite direction. He had already ridden the ghost road and there was a small ferry landing where we were staying that night. So, um, Rose had walked up to talk to him. Yeah. I went up to him. Um, and he, he actually told me his story. He was really distraught. Uh, he, he admittedly was going too fast and, uh, he and his girlfriend went down and she broke her leg or her ankle or something like that. And, and Uh. he was just, he was, yeah, he was crying and, um, he was basically having to, uh, cross without her trying to get to her. She was at the hospital. Oh, I see. So, oh, yeah. I guess terrible. they found her and loaded her up in a truck and took her across and it was like the middle of the night. And so he had stayed there with the motorcycle. 
Um, but yeah, he had to cross the river and try to go find her. I don't know if they had gone back to Manaus or where they were, but, uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, that was a bit of a, a, you know, obviously a cautionary tale for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, cause it was like, you know, he, he warned us, he's like, the road ahead is really dangerous. Reason being, it's like, you know, you'll get lulled into this sense of complacency. You'll get comfortable. And the next thing you know, it's just like deep sand or dust, you know? So mm. it's, it's, it's really easy to be going at like 80, hundred kilometers an hour. And then just completely lose control out of nowhere. And and the dust you're describing, I mean, that's super dangerous when you have trucks around. Ugh. It's so easy to get lost as a motorcyclist in the dust around the trucks from the other driver's perspective. The the ghost road reminded me a lot of the Dalton Highway. Um, mm-hmm. because it's it's one of those roads where it's like during the wet season or when it's wet, you know, when the road is wet, it's just super slippery. Yeah. But when it's dry, it's just the dust will will blind you and choke you. And there's so much truck traffic on that road in particular between Porto Velo and, and Manaus that, yeah, it really, it really reminded me of the, the Dalton Highway, except for the fact that it's, you know, runs through the middle of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that took us about, uh, I, think, I think we took our time. It took us three days to cover that 500 kilometers of dirt. And then we decided to forego the last 200 kilometers of pavement into Porto Velo because we spoke to somebody, they said, it's just flat, it's, there's nothing there. And we were going to have to turn around anyway. Um, so this is the point where the ghost road, the BR319, intersects with the uh, Trans-Amazonian Highway. And this is the third longest highway in all of Brazil. It's 4,000 kilometers long. And this goes from the where we were uh, the jungles of the Amazon to the furthest east point on the South American continent. Um, so the first 1,500 kilometers of this road where we were picking it up was all dirt and sand. Mm. The final wow. 2,500 kilometers was pavement. So yeah, we had just knocked down about 500 miles of dirt on the ghost road and we had another 1,500 kilometers of dirt ahead of us. And is it just packed dirt or is it challenging as well? It's exactly the same as the ghost road in terms of the fact that it will be packed, um, but it'll turn to sand or, you know, dust or gravel just, you know, in the blink of an eye. The biggest difference is there are a lot of hills. Um, The ghost road's relatively flat. This actually has a bit more terrain to it. And Uh so there are some steep sections and there were, we actually ended up going down once in the mud. We got into, and this is the mud, Jim, that you'll see the pictures of where it packs your tire tread. And then it, it, your tire gets stuck between, you know, the, the, yeah, if the, you have a low fender, it jams up in between the fenders. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so as soon as you hit this mud and it's incredible because it's really tacky, but as soon as it, it packs up your tire treads, you're just a pig on ice skates. Um, yeah. you know, and that happened to us once and we went down, you know, probably going about 30 kilometers an hour. Um, you know, luckily we were just, you know, had nothing but dirt on our gear to show for it. But this is a, um, it's a bit more remote than the ghost road was, and it wasn't nearly as much truck traffic. And one of the most, I don't want to say amazing, one of the shocking things about being on the Trans-Amazonian was, you know, often when you travel, you know, when you're in the United States, you know, we'll hear how dangerous Canada is. You know, they always <laughs> talk about Canadians are crazy. 
Yeah. And yeah. It's, part of it's true. I mean, really. <laughs> Only if you try to split lanes. <laughs> when you try to split lanes in Canada, all bets oh, are off. Oh, that'll drive people nuts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 But no, you, you know, when, whenever you're anywhere, like you're, you're in the United States, they talk about how dangerous Mexico is. Mm-hmm. When you're mm-hmm. in Mexico, they talk about how dangerous Guatemala is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. You, always, yeah. you always hear that. Brazil is the one of the first countries I've been in where Brazilians are talking about how dangerous Brazil is. Yeah. And, um, which we hadn't thus far found to be the case. I mean, we were told, do not go under any circumstances to Rio de Janeiro. We went, we spent five days there. We had a blast, you know? Um, but we kept having people warn us on the trans Amazonian. It's very, very dangerous. Do not stay out after night. Do not travel (laughs) off, you know, the main highway. Don't take any side roads. There have been a lot of murders here. Yeah, it just seems like every oh. chance somebody had, they warned us. So, wow. yeah, it was a bit off-putting, I guess. Um, <laughs> That's a light way to say it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, one of the guys that I was talking to, he um, he just says, you know, this is where I am to uh, earn my money. He said, but I will in no way bring my family here. He just says, you know, there's just murder after murder. And even whenever there was sort of like a um, a language barrier, you know, they would do like the they, the gun fingers, you know, and make it very clear that it's just, it's uh, not safe. Like, j- just be careful, whatever you do. Is the, are the murders associated with robbery? I think what it is, uh, Jim, the, so the Amazon's like a real hot button topic, um, you know, in terms of the, you know, Brazilian politics and the environment. And the, the Amazon jungle is, it's a very harsh, very impenetrable environment. Uh, and it's very hard to access the interior until somebody builds a major highway like this. Mm-hmm. And that allows people to get further and further into the Amazon. And there is a lot of illegal mining and there's a lot of illegal um, land clearing that goes on. I mean, in fact, just about everywhere we go in the Amazon, uh, it's, it's on fire, it's burning. And it's not like a giant fire. It's all these smaller individual fires, but there are so many of them. As they're burning out area, they're burning out land, exactly, like, or, or forest to, to so they can grow crops. It's slash and burn. It's slash yeah. and burn. But Everything's uh, filled with smoke. Yeah, I mean, there are some days where it's just like you know you're getting choked by the smoke. I mean, an entire mm. day, and it's all these small individual fires. But a lot of this land clearance that's taking place is illegal. Okay. And so I don't know. I don't know what the real danger is. They talk about organized crime, you know, and when you think about organized crime, you think about mobsters and stuff like that, but they, they consider the illegal mining and the illegal land clearance, you know, organized crime uh, in these areas. And so they talk about the murder rates. They talk about the crime rates. I don't know if it has to do with robbery. Um, I don't know if it has to do with, you know, generally speaking, you know, and I've always felt like this in Mexico, you know, there's, there's cartel controlled areas in Mexico, like Sinaloa. You know, people talk about it's dangerous there, but for the most part, it's like these cartels are, you know, running a business and, you know, they're not messing around with moto travelers, you know, Mm -hmm. you you know, as long as you're, you're just passing through, you know, unless you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so I've always kind of felt that way. I've never had problems in Mexico. Um, I've always kind of felt that way in instances like this. It's like, they've got no interest in me, you know, messing with me doesn't, you know, further their pursuit, you know, unless it is a case of robbery. So 
Well, and in that case, they don't need your money anyway. They've got so much money. You would think. You would think. Yeah. So I don't really understand what the basis of all the crime was, but we were told specifically a lot of times there's been a lot of murder in this area. And so this one day in particular, and this is, you know, we'd already been on the route. I mean, I think it took us from Manaus until the time that we'd finally gotten to um, to the end of the road. We were on the road for about a month. And uh, as we were nearing the end of the dirt section before we got on the pavement, uh, the previous night, somebody had told me, do not be out on the highway after dark. The bad people come out after dark. And that very same day, we had stopped uh, along the way to pull over and, you know, get something to drink. And that was one of the nights that, or that was one of the days that somebody had told Rose, I won't bring my family here. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot mm -hmm. of murders. Right. Well, we continued down the road and next thing you know, uh, flat tire. So pull over front flat. I, I fixed the flat and I realized the funny thing was, um, I had brought in extra heavy duty tubes down with me cause I run tubes in my tires mm -hmm. and the tubes were brand new and I had, uh, the tubes and new tires mounted. Well, apparently while they were mounting my tires, someone punctured my tube. They pinched uh, the tube because yeah. when I pulled my brand new tube out, it had a patch that I didn't put on it there and the patch had blown. And so, you know, it had like a big, like two in, two inch cut in it. And so I pull that tube out and I have a spare tube and this was just kind of like a, you know, a, a regular duty tube that I bought in Bolivia months earlier. So I put that tube in, we head back down the highway. I got another front flat uh. and you know, the first flat, flat, the first flat, excuse me, probably took about 45 minutes to an hour to change. And now I'm into flat number two. And guess what? It's starting to get dark out. Oh. So right after we were told, do not be on this road after dark. So, so that's got to make a pretty stressful flat repair. I pulled off the highway. Well, you know, anytime you get two flats in a row. Well, that's <laughs> enough. Yeah, that's enough stress as it, as it is on that's its own. Enough, no fun. That's enough yeah. to push you over the top anyway. Yeah. So, so there's, you know, we're, we're on this, the, the main highway, the Trans-Amazonian, and I'm try, I want to try to get off the main highway because it's getting dark and I don't want people to be able to see us. Yeah, you don't want to attract attention. Yeah, so I was mm -hmm. like, all right, well, I'm, I got to try to get off the road, but there's really nowhere to pull off. You know, it's this road cut through the middle of the jungle. But there was a, there was a river crossing, there was a bridge, you know, and the, you, you know, you cross 50 bridges a day, uh, when you're out here. Uh, and typically there's like a small trail that will go down to the edge of the river. So I took one of these little side roads down and we kind of parked, you know, next to below the bridge to try to stay out of sight from the road, mm -hmm. get out the tools. And at this time it's dark, it's pitch black. And, um, Rose decided you know, I had a little bit of dish soap. Um, and so Rose was going to go down to the river's edge to get some water. Uh, so we could, you know, mix set up. The bead. Yeah. So we could set the bead on the tire. Mm -hmm. And so she walks down to the river's edge. It's dark out. I've got my headlamp on. I'm, you know, fiddling with the tire. And I hear Rose behind me somewhere in the darkness say, Tudo bom? which is Portuguese for, is everything cool? And I'm like, she's talking to somebody. Oh. We're, we're out in the middle of nowhere in the dark, you know, Rose has just crawled through the bushes to try to get down to the small river to grab some, somebody's in the bushes. Yeah. There was oh, a man, man down there on a hammock with, um, you know, no shirt on. I go down there and 
I didn't know he was there. I don't know if he knew I was there, but I was trying, that's all I was doing was trying to get water. And yeah, it was probably, I don't know. How, how, how far down was the water, would you say? Oh, I mean, it wasn't that far. It was only probably about 30 feet behind us. But when you get, you know, 10 feet in the jungle, you can't see a damn thing. Yeah. Right. You know? And so, yeah, there was just an, you know, so I was just like, oh, great. You know, we're not supposed to be out at, after dark. We're not supposed to be on any side roads here. We've done both. And now there's some <laughs> rando in the bushes here. But I, I sounds like, you know, I was like, what's going on? And Rose was like, somebody's down here. I was like, what? So <laughs> she scrambles back up to where the bike is. And at this point now I'm kind of paranoid because it's like, this guy knows where we are. You know, is he going to try to get the jump on us? Yeah. But I, it just seems like he was maybe... um Maybe like, just passing through. Yeah, just somebody passing through because it didn't seem like he had like a an encampment set up. You know, it was just a guy with a couple bags that had thrown his hammock up in the trees. So <laughs> that's pretty bizarre, though, it isn't it? Very <laughs> random, Jim. It was yeah. very random because it was literally we're in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing else. I out should there. have asked him to give us a hand. Yeah, <laughs> come on up here, give us a hand. <laughs> so. So, um, yeah, we fixed the flat. And again, here we are riding again at night, you know, which, you know, we, we don't do. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> never. But yeah, we never ride at night. But, you know, that was, I think, the end of the dirt section of the Trans-Amazonian. And after that, the, the, the final 2,500 kilometers, um, you know, was just, you know, typical highway. Uh, you know, city to city, that kind of thing. It, was, it wasn't really anything to write home about, but we finally arrived at kilometer zero in, what's the name? Joao Pessoa. Joao Pessoa, which is the, the furthest. Pessoa. 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 I, I have a hard time wrapping my gringo tongue around some of these names. Um, but yeah, it's the furthest east point on the continent. So yeah, uh, just about two months after we started in Coca, Ecuador, 2,000 kilometers of river, 2,000 kilometers of dirt, another 3,000 kilometers of pavement, we made it. Wow. So there you are sitting in what, Joao Pessoa. You've completed this. How do you feel? I'm still stunned, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is kind of how we started the conversation. We were talking about like this, uh, and I don't know if we discussed this on air or not, but kind of this epiphany that I had while we were on the boat. Mm -hmm. Um. And I don't even recall what section of the river we were on, but I had just like before we had even gotten to Manaus, just for whatever reason, was overwhelmed with this sense of like fulfillment. Like after close to 20 years of exploring South America, it's like, I'm done. It's like, I've, I've, I've seen everything I've wanted to see. There are no stones left to, to, to turn over. You know, it's a, uh, I was, I was a bit kind of, um, it was very surreal. Uh, like Rose said, it was hard to believe we had done it because we never even really set out to do it in the first place. It was something that we kind of ended up just piecing together by accident. But once we were done, it was just like, uh, we were a bit in awe. It was just like, I can't believe we just did yeah, that. Yeah. Did we really do that? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it is not, you know, a typical trip. Is part of it because it was so, um, so raw. I mean, you were out there, you really saw what, especially on that, that one boat that mm -hmm. was just a, a working vessel because you really saw life. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get any more real than that for exploring South America. I mean, that was sort of the essence of the Amazon. That was a huge part of it for me. 
No, I agree. I mean, it was very, again, for close to two decades, this was like the most impactful trip um, that I've had in South America. It was, um, it was very different. It was very different. And it was, I mean, it was um, incredibly fulfilling in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, it's still, I still struggle to put it into words, to be honest with you. So are you happy you did it? Oh, was it a great experience? Incredibly so. But I mean, the thing is, it's, you know, I, I honestly wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) Would you do it again? No, absolutely not. If, If you could go back right now and let's say you could somehow magically be transported back to the start of that, knowing how the whole trip would turn out, would you do it? There's no way in hell, Jim, that I would have done this on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, like I said, I hadn't even really planned on doing this. It wasn't until Rose said, let's do it. And I was just kind of like, are you serious? <laughs> you know, but I mean, left to my own devices, it would have, I would have left it at, oh, that's interesting. Theoretically I could, but there's no way I would have done it on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Rose is really the only reason that we ended up doing this. And it was just cause she was so game to do it. I, I almost felt like I had to do it now. <laughs> Rose, did it live up to your expectations or or did it sort of blow your mind? You know, with everything that we do, I think I uh, have learned not to have too many expectations as I go. And I think that's really what has served me well. Um, I would would be miserable if Chad and I did the type of travel that uh, we found ourselves in luxury hotels all the time. That just is way too sterile for me. So this is, this is exactly, uh, up my alley, whether I realize it at the time or not, but I'm so, so glad that we did it. How is the, how is the trip, the experience of this affected you guys or has it? Uh, no, it's actually, to be honest with you, Jim, it's, um, not that I didn't already respect Rose for, you know, everything that I've seen her put up with just, you know, putting up with me. Um, but I gained a lot of respect for her over this trip because it was not. Oh, thank you. It was not an easy trip, and that's why I honestly don't recommend uh, people attempt it. You know, and it, I'm not telling anybody not to do it. You know, because people are curious. Um, but especially with the water levels as low as they were, just the art of getting the motorcycle on and off. I think we ended up with the motorcycle uh, using seven different boats or something like that. And each one of those boats was a struggle to get the gear on and then off again. And it was just logistically, it was a nightmare. Um, but in terms of like our connection, I just, I definitely look at Rose a bit differently now. I didn't know that she was that much of a badass. <laughs> Thank you. How about you, Rose? I, yeah, I mean, uh, everything I think that we go through kind of brings us closer to each other. Um, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's kind of like learning on the job for me, uh, to be in this sort of, um, relationship that we have. Uh, so, I mean, where, where am I now in terms of looking back on it? I mean, like everything, I am so glad that we do what we do. Um, and you know, it's, it's like, uh, we make these choices to, to venture out and we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you know, in the end, it's like, we've, we've become better for it. Chad saying that, you know, he was really taken by 
your skills and what you, what you could handle. Do you, do you find that you came out of this with new skills or, or was it just that you just had an experience? I, you know, I don't really see what he sees in terms of like, you know, that I was, um, you know, able to go through so much. I didn't really think of it that way at the time, nor do I now. I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm glad we did go. I think, Jim, it's kind of what you touched on earlier, um, like during the chaotic scene when we got to Trace Frontetters. And it, it is one of those kinds of things where it, it can overwhelm you, you know, and I mm-hmm. think I think for some people it can break them or you can take a step back and appreciate it for what it is and be like, okay, this is this is why we came. This craziness, this chaos, this just uncertainty, this, you know, it, it's just such a unique spot on the planet when you see everything that's going on there. Um, you know, I, I think it can go either way. And just the fact that, you know, Rose was able to sit back and enjoy the ride instead of just like white knuckling her way through it. Um, that to me is what was so damn impressive. Because I mean, there were times where I was white knuckling it. I look over at her and she's just, you know, happy as a clam. I was just like, all right, <laughs> all right, cool. <laughs> yeah. If you have to control everything, I think you're, you're not going to be very happy because there's really not a lot of control out there that you can have. Do you guys think that the trip would have been possible if you didn't have, like, I, I know your language, you're saying your Spanish isn't necessarily great, maybe for political conversations or something like that. But do you think if you didn't have the language that you had, the ability to speak and interact with people, would, would you have been able to do this or would it have turned out differently? Um, I, I think, you know, the more you struggle to communicate, obviously, the more it complicates things. I mean, I, I think you could probably do it without any Spanish. We don't speak, we hardly speak any Portuguese. Um, you know, and we've been doing just fine in, in Brazil. Um, you know, primarily we just tell people we don't speak Portuguese and then we start speaking Spanish and they have no idea what we're saying, but (laughs) it's like, all right, now, now, now you know how we feel. But when you're trying to deal with stuff like getting your boat loaded and unloaded and trying to figure out what's coming next, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a huge asset to have some form of communication to be able to grasp something. Yeah, Yeah. Sometimes we get things wrong as well. Like the information I think is one way ends up being the other. And I know it's on my side because I've misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it definitely helps, um, you know, the more, the more you're able to communicate with people. But I mean, the funny thing is, and you know, in that part of the world, a lot of the people, especially the, uh, the older people, they don't even speak Spanish. No. Um, Mm. They speak like Quechua or, you know, one of the indigenous languages. So I was like, in the instance where I was splinting the woman's wrist, it was like, she was speaking Quechua to her granddaughter who was translated from Quechua to Spanish, you know, and then Spanish to English. So yeah, it was kind of interesting. <laughs> and Rose just made a, a, a good point there, or at least an interesting point about um, making mistakes, because it, it's almost like your your grasp or your, your, your light grasp of the language could actually be not an asset, it could be a hindrance for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. She, she she almost got me arrested in Chile once, actually. Oh, um, <laughs> come now. <laughs> it had to do with renewing my residency in Chile, and Rose had uh, uh, misinterpreted something that one of the uh, immigration officers had said to me, and um, so I thought that my residency was in in process, and we got pulled over at one of the uh, at one of the inspection stations in the middle of the night. Uh, and it was snowing out and they, they wanted my paperwork and I handed him my old Chilean ID, 
which had since expired. And I said, oh, don't worry. You know, my residency renewal's in process. And they went and checked on the computer. They're like, no, it ain't. <laughs> they, they, they literally almost kicked me into Argentina, like in the middle of the night in the snow. But luckily, just by a complete stroke of luck, my tourist visa still had like two days left on it. And oh. so they're like, look, you're lucky, but you got to go get this handled like tomorrow. I was like, okay, thank you. Uh, got back in the truck. I was like, thanks a lot, Rose. <laughs> oh, he's well, fine. That, that is a, a, something to think about when you're grasping a language just barely, isn't it? <laughs> you yeah. sometimes just get the gist of it, but then sometimes you get it completely wrong. <laughs> uh, Chad, Rose, thank you so much. It was just wonderful to hear your story. And I'm so glad you guys made it through fine and happy and invigorated for your next adventure. Yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible uh, trip, Jim. And thank you so much for thank the opportunity you, to come onto the show and talk about it with you. Yeah, thank you, Jim. That was Chad Horton and Rose Padilla from Two Wheels, Three Sheets. Check out their YouTube channel under that name. We have that link in our show notes, along with the photos that we talked about. You've got to see these pictures. Look specifically at the one unloading the motorcycle. Then look at the end of the ramp that the bike is on. An incredible feat, to say the least, but it's also sort of a, uh, an inside look into a world that few outsiders get to experience. All of that in our show notes at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, MotoBreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you, thank you very much for being a part of the show by listening to it. Hey, if you're not doing it already, the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We'd really appreciate it if you just drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Just look at what we're offering there. Anything $10 or more will get you Adventure Rider Radio stickers for your toolbox, your panniers. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout-out on our Raw show. And as I usually do when I mention that, because it prompts myself, it prompts me to do it, is mentioned Raw. Raw is the other show that we do. It comes out once a month on the 21st of every month. You can find it everywhere podcasts are found. It's a, sep- a separate feed from this one. So you'll need to search for that. Search for Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Jackie Lang. And I'm David Focardi. And you're you're listening listening to Adventure Adventure Rider Radio. Radio.